0: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome out to River Ridge. Welcome to Summer at the Ridge. We're so glad that you uh, chose to spend a few minutes with us this morning. And as you saw in that video there, we are kicking off a brand new summer series this week called Road Trip. And I think all of us have some road trip stories that are stored in, in the back of our mind. And the thing about road trips is that it's not even so much about the destination as the experiences and the conversations that we have along the way. And so over the next eight weeks, we're going to go on a road trip with Jesus. And we're going to peer in and listen in on some of the conversations that he has with people along the way. And these encounters transformed the lives of the people that Jesus talked to. And there's a lesson in each of these stories and each of these conversations in our own lives. But the road trip won't just be about here on Sunday morning. We've actually put together A little bookmark, Uh, it'll look like this, out in the lobby. You can grab one of these, and over the next eight weeks, there are 40 stories, 40 uh, conversations that Jesus had with other folks that you can uh, read on your own. There's a couple of questions on the front that will help guide your your quiet time with God, because one of the things we say around here is if you can spend 15 minutes a day with God, it will transform your life. So we want to equip you along the way as we go on this road trip together. We will be in John chapter 3 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn your way there, we'll be there in a few minutes. And it'll be a a story that's really familiar uh, for many of us in here this morning, but we'll get there in just a few minutes. Uh, When I was growing up, I took up uh, the sport of tennis in my teenage years. And while I never was great, I I was good enough to to make the the high school tennis team. And when I was probably 16 or 17 years old, I, I finally entered in my, my first bigger tournament, and uh, I was prepared, I was ready to go in, and I found out that I drew the number one ranked player, the guy that had won it the four previous years. That was the guy that I was playing in the first round, and yet, in my mind, I still thought, man, I'm, I'm ready, I'll at least make this competitive, and that guy beat me like a drum. I, I mean, I, I didn't even get a game the entire match, and I played as hard as I could, but it was abundantly clear that my good wasn't good enough, that there was a standard that that my best didn't even come close to. And my guess is that we've all had experiences like that where despite our best efforts, they weren't good enough. Maybe it was in academics and you wanted to get an A in a class or get an A on the test and you tried your best but it wasn't good enough. Or, or maybe it was you, you were trying to, to win a date with a guy or a girl and yet you, you were really trying and they said no. Or it was you, you, you try to put your name in for a promotion at work. But we've all had those times when we were faced with the fact that our best wasn't good enough. And we are kicking off this series with a fascinating interaction that Jesus had with a guy named Nicodemus who came to this same conclusion in his own life. And the conversation that Jesus had with him completely transformed his life from that day forward. So if you have your Bibles, we will dive into John chapter 3, and we will pick up in verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. If you have your Bibles and you're into underlining, underline Pharisee and underline ruling council because we learn quite a bit about uh, Nicodemus with just these two phrases right here. Now, first we learn that he's a Pharisee. And if you've grown up in church or maybe you've been in church for a while, uh, when you hear that term Pharisees, it immediately conjures up this picture of someone that is puffed up, right? That that is self-righteous, that is seen as an enemy of Jesus. And that was true of some, but back in Jesus' day in the first century, being a Pharisee was a huge badge of honor. I mean, these guys were the varsity players in the religious, in the Jewish religion. They would have memorized, completely memorized, word for word, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, Have you ever tried to read the book of Numbers? I, I'm convinced that, 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 the, that the book of Numbers is the, is the one thing that tanks everybody's reading through the Bible in a year. You, know, you, you, get, you, you make your way through Leviticus and you get to about Numbers chapter 7. you You're like, uh, I give up. I'm going back into the, old, into the New Testament. But these guys not only just read it, they memorized it word for word. So in terms of just raw spiritual discipline, these guys were the top. They knew their Bibles well. And they obeyed even the most obscure commands. And they would even make up their own commands just to make sure that they had all their bases covered. Everyone in Jesus' day looked up to these guys as the religious giants. And even Jesus recognized this. In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, there's there's this section in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus takes a lot of the laws of Moses and then he ratchets them up a few notches to make them completely out of reach. And for example, he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother and calls him a fool will face judgment. I could probably get through my life without murdering somebody. But but to get to a point where I've never harbored bitterness or vengeful thoughts against someone, there's no way. And then Jesus takes the, the the sin of adultery, and he said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And over and over again, throughout this section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps doing this. He keeps taking the law and raising it up, and he's telling them and telling us that God's holiness is beyond our best efforts. And to make sure that his audience understood this point He says this in Matthew 5, verse 20. He says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And when people would have heard Jesus say that, they'd say, Okay, I'm out then. I mean, I'm not going to be better than those guys. I mean, the Pharisees had it all. Everyone, including Jesus, noticed and recognized that the Pharisees were the best of the best in the Jewish religion. And our boy Nicodemus is one of those. But this verse also goes on a step further and says, "Not only was he a Pharisee, he was part of the Sanhedrin." Now the Sanhedrin was this ruling council that almost like the Supreme Court of the day for, for the nation of Israel, Israel, and there were only 70 people allowed in the Sanhedrin. And then later on, Jesus would call him the teacher of Israel, which a lot of commentators and scholars believe saying that that Nicodemus was the foremost scholar, that he was the most senior leader even in the Sanhedrin. So here's what we got. We have a guy that's part of the Pharisees, and then the inner circle of the Pharisees called the Sanhedrin, and he was the chief guy in the Sanhedrin. He was at the top of the religious ladder. Think Billy Graham back in that day, and that's who we have And the guy of Nicodemus, from a human goodness standpoint, there was no one gooder than Nick. This guy had it going on. And yet when he got to the top of this religious ladder and he looked around, he still had this gnawing feeling like, gosh, I I think I'm missing something. He was still looking for answers. And he thought that maybe Jesus would have some of these answers. So in verse 2, it says that he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you were doing if God were not with him. So it says that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and there's some speculation on why he may have done that. Some think that it was the only time both both Nicodemus and Jesus were these really busy guys, and it was the only time that they could get their schedules to match and it not be interrupted. And others think that he was just afraid of being seen, that he didn't want his fellow Pharisees seeing him talking to Jesus. But regardless of why, he has heard enough of the way that Jesus teaches and he has seen the miraculous signs that Jesus has performed that he knows that Jesus is sent from God in some way. And he hasn't put it all together yet, but he thinks that Jesus might be able to help him out a little bit and answer some of these questions that have been bugging him. And then in verse three, Jesus says, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And and it says there at the beginning in in reply, but Nicodemus hasn't even asked a question yet. It was almost like Jesus is saying, all right, let's cut to the chase. I, I know why you're here. Here's the answer to the question that's been bugging you, the way into the kingdom of God. The way to know that you are right with God is not by doing all these right things. You have to be born again. Here's the bad news, if you're taking notes. Here's the bad news that Jesus is breaking to him and breaking to us. The bad news is that there is a gap between God's standard and our best efforts. He looks at Nicodemus and he's telling him, listen, you're not good enough. You will never be good enough. God's standard for goodness is beyond your best efforts. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you've done. You must be born again. It's something that you haven't done yet. And this is stunning that Jesus would share this, would say this to someone of Nicodemus's stature, to to say this to someone of Nicodemus's character. And yet Jesus is making this point that even if you're at the top of the religious pile, even if your goodness exceeds everyone else's around you, you still must be born again. There's this simple rule in life, this principle in life, that that when a rule applies to the greatest, it applies to everyone else. So in my opinion, LeBron James is the greatest basketball player in the world right now. And so if the, the coach comes to the team, comes to the Cavaliers, well, when they were still playing, if he were to come to the Cavaliers last week and say, i tell you what, everyone after practice, we're all shooting a hundred free throws. All eyes would be on LeBron James. And if LeBron steps up to the foul line and shoots his hundred free throws, the other guys know, well, we have to as well. Because if the rule applies to the greatest, it applies to everyone else. And I think that's why we have the story of Nicodemus in our Bibles. Nicodemus is the best of the best when it comes to human goodness. If anyone could be right with God based on human effort, it'd be him. If religion could make you right before God, he'd be in. But this passage is telling us that if Nicodemus had to be born again, then so do you and I. So what does this mean? What's this term mean, born again? Born again? Nicodemus was scratching his head at this term himself. And in verse 4, he comes back to Jesus and he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, at this point, Nicodemus is still looking through this lens of performance, of looking at his acts of goodness. And so when he hears this term born again, he's thinking that Jesus is saying, You need to relive your life. And Nicodemus is in essence saying, I I look back on my life. I look back on my past. and, And there are some things that I wish I could do over again. There are some chapters in my life that I wish that I could erase. I wish that I could go back, but Jesus, I can't. I can't go back and make right the things that I've done wrong. And I think that he's feeling the weight of this gap between God's standard and his goodness. So what does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he says you must be born again? Jesus answered in verse five. He says, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. There's a lot of debate about what Jesus means when he uses this phrase of water and spirit. But I think later in the passage, we get a very significant clue about what he means. Later on, he rebukes Nicodemus and says, you're the teacher of Israel. You should know what I'm talking about. Why would he think that Nicodemus should know this? It's because he's referring back to something in the Old Testament that Nicodemus should have been able to recall when he saw that phrase, born of water and spirit. Most scholars and commentators believe that Jesus was referring back to a, a passage in Ezekiel chapter 36, where God is making this promise to the nation of Israel, And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is what it means to be born again. First, that you are cleansed from your sin. All of those times that you have failed to live up to God's standard, either because of rebellion or because of disobedience, God is promising to wash away all of those and to make you new. And then secondly, God says that I will give you a new spirit. I will give you my spirit to lead your life. And I will take your heart of rebellion. I'll take this heart of stone and I will give you a tender heart that wants to obey the leading of the spirit in your life. Being born again comes down to accepting this incredibly lopsided deal from God where he says, I will take your sin and I will give you a new spirit. And God wants to do this in each of our lives. Jesus continues in verse 6 to explain a little bit further what this spirit-led life looks like. In verse 6, he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying that you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus says flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to Spirit. He's saying that this new life, this spiritual rebirth that he is talking about can only come from God. And then he goes on and he compares the Holy Spirit's work to that of the wind. And he's saying in the same way that, that you can't see the wind, but you can see its effects by how a tree moves, he's saying that you can't see the spirit, but you can see the effects of this spiritual rebirth. And those effects look like a transformed life. The spiritual rebirth changes someone completely from the inside out. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, teacher, you shouldn't be surprised by me saying this. You you have been looking forward to this. You study the Old Testament. You have been looking forward to this day. And I'm telling you that I am the fulfillment of that. That all of those passages in the Old Testament have been pointing to me. And then look at Nicodemus' response in verse 9. He simply says, how can this be? For years, he's been teaching people that the way to be right with God is through their obedience and through doing the right things. And he's been wrong his entire life. Jesus has turned his world completely upside down. And you can sense this internal conflict going on inside. So he says, Jesus, help me understand this. How does this happen? And Jesus' response is the answer to the question of how do we please God? It's the answer to how do we close this gap between us and God. Now he's going to share with us the good news that counteracts the bad news. Jump down to verse 13. Jesus says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Religion tries to convince us that we can work our way up to God. But Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you you can't work your way up to God. So I came down. This is the the picture of the incarnation. I I don't think that eternity will be enough time for us to understand just how much Jesus loves us. I mean, to to think of the fact that, that he left the perfection of heaven. No sin, no evil, no death. And he comes down to this fallen, fractured, broken world to close that gap for us, to live the life that we could not live, to live this perfect life that we could never live. And then he goes on and he starts painting this picture referring to an Old Testament passage that that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. He's referencing back to the story found in in Numbers chapter 21, this time when the nation of Israel was in the wilderness and they were being disobedient and grumbling before God and these snakes made their way into the camp and they started biting the Israelites and they were dying. And so the, the people that were in the camp cry out to Moses and Moses cries out to God, for him to send a way to save them. And God says, Okay, I want you to take a pole and I want you to put a bronze serpent, a bronze snake on top of it, and tell the people that anyone who will look up to this will be saved. And it worked. And Jesus is saying that in the same way that the snake was lifted up, he would be lifted up. This is a picture of the cross. And he says that anyone who looks to the cross to save them from their spiritual death sentence would be saved as well. If you're taking notes, this is the good news. The good news is that the cross bridges that gap. It's only because of the cross that our sins can be washed away and that we can have eternal life with God. It's not about working our way up to God. It's about the perfect son of God coming down to us. It's about us looking up to see our crucified Savior whose sacrificial death paid our price. He died the death that we deserve so that we can have eternal life with God. And Jesus says that it comes down to this word belief, to trust that Jesus is who he said he was, that he was the Son of God, that he is the Son of God, and that his death made a way where there was no way. His death made a way for us to spend eternity with God. Nicodemus had spent his whole life trying to perform, his whole life trying to perfect his behavior. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you have to stop worrying about all this outward stuff. What matters is, have you been born again? Have you had this internal spiritual rebirth? Have your sins been washed away? Have you been given God's spirit in your life? That's what matters. That's the only thing that matters. John 3 doesn't let us know. It ends without letting us know what Nicodemus decided. But I think that we get a very clear indication of what happened in Nicodemus's life. It's found in John chapter chapter 19. Uh, After Jesus had died and all of his disciples had scattered, out of the crowd stepped two men, to ask Pilate for Jesus' body so that they could give him a proper burial. Two men who were a part of the Sanhedrin, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea and our guy Nicodemus. I think somewhere along the way, these two got to a point where they believed that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the son of God and they became disciples of his. That this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus along the way completely and utterly changed his life for eternity. Let me make a, a couple of applications for us this morning, uh, for a couple different groups that are here. First, a couple of applications for those of us that are followers of Jesus. I think sometimes. We hear the good news, the good news of Jesus' way of salvation with so much frequency that it almost feels like old news to us. I, I purposely stopped uh, the, the teaching this morning, a verse before John 3.16, that, that most famous of all verses that just about everybody in this room could quote by memory. Um, I found something out this morning, or this week when I was preparing. I, I do a lot of underlining, either when I hear somebody teaching or in my own quiet time. And I found it interesting this week that when I popped open John 3, I do not have John 3:16 underlined in my Bible. It's not that we mean to, but I think that as followers, the, the good news can almost become so commonplace That it loses its effect on us. That it doesn't seep... We we have this head knowledge, but it doesn't seep down into our hearts. And I think unconsciously we gloss it over. It kind of plays in the background and we say, yeah, I know that God loves me. I, I I know the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We can rattle it off in our mouth, but it doesn't really take root in our hearts. We don't appreciate it like we should at times. So here's an application for us this week that I did in my own life over the last few days and it's really made a big difference. I I want us to take that common verse, the one that all of us know and I think sometimes read past, John 3, 16, and I want us to spend some time this week, a few minutes each day, internalizing that and personalizing it in our own lives. It, It could be something like this, for God so loved me, we can say, yeah, for God so loved the world, but... Personalize it. Make it personal. For God so loved me. He he knew that my sin, my failures, my disobedience would separate me from him for eternity if he didn't do something to intervene. And so what did he do? He gave his one and only son to die in my place. To die my death. And since I believe, since I believe in him, I shall not perish, but I will. I will have, do have eternal life. I think we have to fight against complacency. And as believers, this is it. I mean, this is the crucial aspect of our lives. So take this familiar verse. And spend a little bit of time each day personalizing and internalizing it so that you can rest in God's love for you. Don't move past the good news. And then the second application for for those of us that, that are followers of Jesus, ask the question, who are your Nicodemus friends? We all have some folks in our lives that are just good people. They, they, they live good lives, they love their families well, they, they treat people respectfully, they're, they're nice, they're honest, they're hardworking, but they don't know Jesus. And, and maybe because they live such good lives and they do things the right way, you don't know how to share with them their need of Jesus. In a few weeks after we finish up Road Trip, we're, we're going to do a series around how do we share our faith, and it'll be real practical for us. But in the meanwhile, don't give up on them. I I would say pray for your Nicodemus friends. Pray that God would soften their hearts and pray for some opportunities where you can share the good news of who Jesus is. Maybe you could point them to this message. (laughs) There's also a little booklet out there uh, by a pastor named Andy Stanley called How Good is Good Enough?, that I think will raise a lot of questions in the minds of people who are trying to do life their own way and trying to live a life that is pleasing to God, but without Jesus. But find some ways where you are owning opportunities to pray for them and then seeking some opportunities to share with them their need of Jesus. And then lastly, some of you are here this morning and you've been going through life trying to be good enough, hoping that in some way that the good things that you do in your life will somehow outweigh the bad things that you've done. And if you're honest, you're here this morning, and the weight of your gap between God's standard and your good works has created this gnawing feeling that you're trying to figure out Maybe you look back on your life like Nicodemus did and you you have some chapters in your life where you're going, I I don't know how to overcome that. I did some awful things during that chapter of my life and I wish that I could just erase them, but you can't. And so you're feeling the weight of that gap between you and God and you're thinking that there's got to be more. There's got to be an answer to this. And what you've heard... This morning is the bad news that you can never be good enough to be right with God and that you must be born again. And that comes from trusting that Jesus is the son of God and that his death on the cross filled that gap between your goodness and God's standard of perfection. And you have a decision to make about Jesus. That's what it comes down to. What do you do with this man Jesus. And if you're ready to make that decision, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. You can simply pray this prayer. The prayer isn't what saves you. It is your trust, your belief in Jesus that saves you. So let's all close your eyes and we can pray together. You can pray, Heavenly Father, I, I recognize that I have not lived a perfect life. And that there is a gap between your standard of perfection and the life that I live. And because of that, I, I need a savior. I need somebody that can fill that gap for me. And I believe that Jesus paid my penalty with his death on the cross. And so I say, Jesus, save me. Wash away my sin. Wash away my failures. Wash away my rebellion and disobedience. And give me a new spirit. And give me a new heart that will follow after you. And Father, for all of us here, I I pray that the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection daily encourages us. Remind us afresh of your great love for us and help us to live lives in response to that. Thank you for meeting with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you have placed your faith in Christ today, I I wanna talk to you. Come up here and grab me after the service. I'd love to sit down with you, get some people around you to help fan this flame, give you some next steps for you in your life um, for the rest of us. Have a great week. Come back here next week for week two of Road Trip. Have a good one. See ya.